Welcome to Off Message. I'm Isaac Dover. You know that old question that sometimes was asked of World War II or Korea's of, Daddy, what did you do in the war? Well, people are going to ask Daddy, Mommy, kid, what did you do in this moment in our history where our democracy is threatened, where the challenges are as great as they've ever been, and where the world is not coordinating very effectively. Today's guest, former Secretary of State John Kerry. He has a new book out, Every Day is Extra. And I think it's fair to say that I opened it up suspicious of what it was going to be. It's 584 pages. It's a retired politician's memoir. It's by a guy who's been around in public life for 50 years, from when he first came on the scene as a veteran protesting the Vietnam War to running for Congress and losing, getting elected lieutenant governor, spending 20 years in the Senate before running for president in 2004, losing, going back to the Senate for eight years, getting picked as Obama's secretary of state for the second term, and being then a prime engine behind some of the signature pieces of the Obama legacy, the Iran deal and the Paris Agreement, as well as some stuff that didn't work, like the Middle East peace process, most of which President Trump has since reversed. So with all that, I was expecting a pretty dry read, a doorstop, perfect for the kind of Christmas or Father's Day present that no one ever gets far past the cover on. But it's actually good. It's very much John Kerry. Look for him using the word lad, things like that. It's comprehensive without being exhausting, and there are definitely things you'll learn about him and the history of what was going on that weren't out there before. And though he's been doing a lot of interviews as part of his book tour, I think the same is true of this interview. He's done probably a million interviews over his life, but spending as much time straight, the two of us in a room at the Carnegie Endowment for Peace offices right by DuPont Circle in Washington, I think brought him to things he wasn't quite expecting to talk about or expecting to say. That's what I think of as the magic moments of podcasting when the conversation takes off in ways I never expected and suddenly we're talking about something I never planned. Or when we're having that kind of breakthrough revealing moment that comes from the comfort of an actual conversation rather than a quick appearance on television looking for a soundbite. And so, though this one was on the schedule for a while, I think it's a good one for me to end on. As I mentioned last week, I'm headed over to a new job at The Atlantic, which means this is my final podcast here at Politico, my last off message. Since I took over the podcast in January 2017, we've clocked just under 100 interviews. We've recorded a lot of them here in Washington, but also all over the country, in Boston, in Detroit, Austin, Chicago, Raleigh, North Carolina, New Orleans, New York. One of my favorites was recorded last summer in Havana with one of the anchors on Cuban State TV. I talked to Gary Kasparov in Lisbon. I talked to Pete Buttigieg in Topeka, Kansas. It's been great. I didn't think when I started out on this that I'd end up sitting down across the mics with Wyclef John or Jimmy Carter, but hey, both of those happened. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Rahm Emanuel, Margaret Atwood, Deval Patrick, John Dean, Tony Perkins and Seth Meyers, Joe Kennedy and Ben Sass, Tom Tillis and Beto O'Rourke. Some of them are names you know well. Some of them, I hope, are people you came to know by discovering them here. People who were opened up to me by doing the podcast. A guy like Michael Tubbs, for example. And throughout, we tried to go at them in ways that you're not seeing or hearing elsewhere. I have my favorites among the episodes. I hope you do, too. And look, they're all still up on iTunes and Stitcher and everywhere else. So if you haven't heard them yet, you can go back through the archives and pull them up now. Thank you for joining me on this. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your emails, even the ones when you've told me that you hated one of the guests or hate a question I asked or, or hate how I've approached some of the interviews. Thanks for engaging with me. And also a special note of thanks to the people who produced this podcast along the way. 
helping me make sense of everything and make all this happen and get out to you. Bridget Mulcahy for the first six months or so that I was doing Off Message, and Zach Stanton for the last year. You have never heard their voices on here, but they have been there in the room for most of these, even when that's meant late nights or weekends, sometimes on the road in crazy ways, right alongside me. I will miss doing the Off Message podcasts. I really will. But I hope I'll hear from you still in my new job over at The Atlantic. The best way to keep up with where I'll be and what I'll be doing next is by following me on Twitter, at Isaac Dovere. You can also email me at IsaacDovere at gmail.com. And please, keep those emails coming. There will be a new episode of Off Message next week, just without me. But I hope I'll be able to share more podcast news from me before too long into the future. But first, here's my conversation with John Kerry. I'll start with this. What do you remember about Bob Mueller in high school? Or in uh, it's high school, right? When you knew him? Yeah, high school. Yeah. No, I, I knew Bob. Well, I knew him when I was in college. We played against each other in some <laughs> sports when he was in college. But you were on the same team in high school, right? In high school, we were on the same team. He was captain of our hockey team, captain, I think, of another team. He he uh, was just an outstanding athlete. He was yeah. the best athlete in our school. And, um, and, and uh, you know, a really good guy. I mean, a straight arrow strong-minded, focused human being. It seems to me, and uh, Zach and I were talking about this, uh, preparing for this, it sort of captures how much of your life has included these amazing chance encounters or relationships. Well, and, I said that, like people, you were you were playing soccer with Bob Mueller as then former se- or future senator, secretary of state, all these things and all the things that he's done and obviously where yeah. he is now. Well, I, I've said to people that I've, I led a Forrest Gumpian life <laughs> in many ways. Seriously. I mean, I introduced John Lennon at a rally, anti-war rally in New York City. I have one of my favorite photos. Yeah, that's in the John book. John yeah. Lennon and me standing there before we went on, and um, got to meet President Kennedy. Go sailing with him. Improbable event for an eighteen-year-old kid. Um, Just because you happen to be friends yeah. with Jackie Kennedy's half sister. Yes, <laughs> and then later I was playing in a broom hockey game. You know, we have a pickup hockey game around Christmas time with all the family. I mean, kids four years old up to people 74 years old. And it's it's just a lot of fun back and forth up and down the rink. So I was skating down the rink really hard and a guy fell in front of me and I jumped over the guy to get, get you know, to avoid crashing into him. And he starts to get up before I get over him. So he hits the back of my legs. My legs go up in the air. My face plants in the ice, and I break my nose. Literally, you can hear a crack across mm. the rink. So I turn around to see what happened, and guess who broke my nose? None other than Forrest Gump, Tom Hanks. I swear <laughs> to God, and it was the funniest damn thing. In the end, so um, it is a Forrest Gump life. Before we started, I said I I enjoyed reading the book. There's a lot in there. You've been doing a lot of uh, stops on the book tour. Are you surprised by the demand that there is for you and how much interest there is in, in what you have to say, not only in the book, but about all these other things? Well, I think just having been Secretary of State, there's obviously an interest in the Obama administration and there's an interest yep. in the things we were doing, the Paris Agreement. People care enormously about climate change. And I think people are concerned about where we're going. What I find is that an anger that I felt when I was in the Senate, not felt only personally, mm-hmm. but that I felt other people expressing around the country, which we tried to deal with in various ways in the Senate, 
on the tax bill or on the Obamacare, the things we did to try to get universal health care for everybody or to try to get a fair tax structure in our country, not the phony reform that's just been passed, which rewards billionaires at the expense of uh, average folks. I think that uh, I felt a growing, palpable disenchantment, disenfranchisement, disengagement from the average citizen of our country. And it's it's uh, it's dangerous. It's really dangerous. Now we hear oh, Washington's broken. Is it, it's worse than ever? Is it worse than ever, or is it? Yeah, it's what worse you, than ever. But you felt it then. It was on a continuum. I felt it then. I began to see it happen with the Gingrich Revolution in mm-hmm. 1994. And I write in the book. In the book, I'm very clear about this. It's part of the history that I think I track accurately. That that the Senate began to change with the Gingrich Revolution, the Contract for America, the people who came over from the House to mm-hmm. the Senate. And then the Senate began to behave a little more like the House in in one way or the other. And it was not supposed to. The Founding Fathers conceived of it as the check and the balance and the six-year term and all of that. You're supposed to be free from those forces to be able to stand up and vote conscience and vote country. That's not happening. People are voting party ideology purely and voting orthodoxy and, and voting caucus. We've lost something in our politics because of that. You know, part of the feeling about John McCain came about because he, he was so it was unique in his part. I mean, it, there weren't a bunch of people behaving that way, right? It's, and then, you know, and then at the funeral, it was this question of whether it's a political funeral. Obviously, he was trying to make a statement with it, right? With how he structured that whole week, um, sure. and by then having uh, Obama and Bush do the eulogies. But then it, the question that came up was: Is he saying this is a sticking it to Trump thing, or is he saying that he's standing up for something? that he feels like everybody in the country should be standing up for, right? Like Look, it, I, it wasn't I, just I, a personal thing with Trump. Um, I, I, I guarantee you it was not just – it was it was about what he was fighting for and what he believed in. Uh, and I'm sure he wasn't upset at, you know, punching back at a guy who dishonored his, his being a prisoner of war and somehow draws a distinction that he doesn't like people who are prisoners of war. He likes people who don't get captured. That's just such a disgraceful comment. By any standard, it's a disgraceful comment. So look, the bottom line is this, as far as I'm concerned. 2008 changed life for a massive number of Americans. People with mortgages saw their homes cut in value, but they also perhaps saw their jobs cut in -hmm. in pay. And so you have a lot of angry people around who have a you know, stuck with a larger asset. They're paying for it. They don't have as much money. They're not able to pay the bills. Some people working two and three jobs, and I have met those people. And what happened to the American dream is the principal question in their head. Plus, they see what's happening with the richest people in the country. You know, we we now have reached a point where about 51% of America's income, all the income of America, is going to 1% of Americans. I have said again and again, that is not a sustainable political equation. That's an invitation to anarchy, ultimately. I mean, you can have people in the streets over that if we don't get smart. And there have been people in the streets in in different ways. So what happened is you had these series of promises made. We're going to make smaller government. We're going to have less regulation. We're going to have fair takes. We're going to cut your taxes. We're going to get rid of Roe v. Wade, blah, blah, blah. And none of those things happened. Didn't happen on the Gingrich Revolution. Didn't happen with the Tea Party. Didn't happen with the Freedom Caucus. So what did you get? You got a hostile takeover of the Republican Party 
by Donald Trump. There's a line in the book you write at the very end of it when you're talking about what he did on the Paris Agreement. I feel as if someone else's ignorance and demagoguery is stealing the future from my children and grandchildren from the planet itself. I feel that. Yes, that's absolutely what I feel. You feel, but it's. I don't want to talk too much about Trump. You've talked a lot about Trump. No, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about him either because I don't spend time talking about it. Right. What I talk about is the vision for our country. What is the vision for our country? In fact, the book itself, I believe, is a roadmap for how we hold government accountable for what we can do to restore the Senate that works, that can be bipartisan, for unifying the country, bringing people together. And, and the chapter I write about John McCain and me and the work mm -hmm. we did on Vietnam is the example of how it should work. And People it's coming it, from very different places. It struck me because that conversation starts with the two of you on a plane and you just happen to be sitting next to each other. And in the last week when we see what happened with Jeff Flake and Chris Coons and the deal that they struck is that they got to know each other traveling together. Two guys, one's a conservative from Arizona and one's a moderate Democrat from Delaware, uh, but by being around the world together, by being in the Senate together and spending time, they actually had it, a relationship. It makes such a difference. These relationships are really important. The Senate works on relationships. It really does. And I watched that through the years. I mean, you had Orrin Hatch yep. and Ted Kennedy, or you had, you know, Russ Feingold, John McCain, I'm fine. I mean, whatever. You've got to come together across party lines. And what's happened in the last years is you have an orthodoxy that has been policed by self-selected individuals in the Senate who actually attack their colleagues and promise them they'll have a primary and actively go out and get a primary against them, which was unheard of years ago. Now, some people like that. They think that's the way it ought yeah. to be, more combative. But the fact is, our, our democracy is not functioning effectively compared to anyone in the world right now. We're falling behind. With everything that happened in the last couple of days with Flake, I went back and listened to a recording of an interview that I did with Flake last December, in which he was making a very similar point to the one you're making. It has to get better. We have to get past this. And that was a year ago. It doesn't seem like anything is really changing. It, it, well, it hasn't changed that because is this of the election. Is that what it is? Or is it just going to be that people who are on their way out or retired or, well, or can't be right, like, right, saying, oh, it's got to get better? Right. How do you actually get it, it to be, be something reserved. different? It can't be reserved to the people who are leaving. I mean, that's just not going to work. How do you make it better? You make it better by, in a sense, doing some of the things that I write about in the book that show how we made it better back in the late 1960s and 70s. Now, I'm not suggesting that was the best of times. I'm right. not suggesting there weren't excesses there. There were. I'm simply saying we created accountability. We created accountability in civil rights. We created accountability in the environment. We ultimately created accountability in the war in Vietnam, where Richard Nixon finally knew he had to find a way to end that war, the longest war then in, in American history. And you know why it happened? It happened because people made the issues that mattered voting issues. I mean, in, in 1970, I was involved in the Earth Day events mm -hmm. that brought 20 million Americans out of their homes that then translated into a political movement where we targeted the 12 worst votes in Congress, seven of the 12 lost their seats, and all of a sudden, the survivors said, whoops, this is a voting issue. People are out there. Right. So they respond. That's what we have to do now. In the last election, the turnout in 2016 was 54.2%. In the year that Barack Obama won presidency, 2008, 
62.3%. Yeah, one of my the stats that sticks out to me is Michigan was obviously a, a significant win for Donald Trump, but he won the state with fewer votes than George Bush got losing the state to you. Losing the state in, to me. In I won more votes in Michigan. I won more votes in Wisconsin. I won- Which is, is, is a statement about voter turnout, really. It is a statement right. about voter turnout. Uh, it's also a statement about the states I was able to carry, but <laughs> put it that way. That's true. I'm just but the point I'm making is simply you got to work at it. People have been lazy about America's democracy. You can't sit on the sidelines. Even the year that Bush and I were running, it was 60.3% mm-hmm. turnout. So the story of where we are today is not the story of who did vote. It's the story of who didn't vote. And if people will focus on that and reengage, you know, I've been privileged to uh, be an election observer as a senator in, in many countries, in Philippines and Sudan and West Bank in the West Bank, uh, Middle East, in uh, Kenya. And I watch people come out and vote, but they stand in the hot sun for mm-hmm. 12, 15 hours. They wait in lines that would embarrass us in terms of length of time. And I went up to one guy and I apologized because I was a lecture observer. I said, look, I'm sorry, the lines are so long, you have to wait to vote. He said, I've waited 50 years to vote. Mm. The last time I saw you in person was at the Women's March, and you. Uh, so it's the day after the inauguration of uh, President Trump, and it was a packed mall, and suddenly everybody started buzzing because you took a walk through with your you and your dog Ben, uh, and with the uh, diplomat. <laughs> um, and I chased you down. I got maybe ten seconds of a quote from you. To me, what I ended up writing about that day, and which was striking to me, is that people there wanted what I wrote was they wanted it to be like the Tea Party in terms of being a political movement that changed what happened in government. But they were worried that it was going to be more like Occupy Wall Street, which made a lot of noise, but then ultimately didn't do anything. And I asked you how the Women's March would become more than it was. And what you said to me was, what we have to do is to make sure it becomes an activist, everyday movement that keeps politicians accountable. The key is to turn it into work that leads to elections. So it's pretty consistent in what you're saying here. And you said- And I write about it in the book because back with Richard Nixon- you know, he won 49 states in 1972. A year and a half later, he was gone. Yeah. That's because people kept hammering and, and stayed focused on the truth. So, and you said a lot of people are going to be working on this, on turning it into more. What kind of role do you want to have going forward and, and work on it? And this isn't a, are you running for president question. This is no, a bigger that. thing. I understand that. Look, I, I, the answer is very simple and it's consistent with my entire life, which is activist. I mean, I'm not going to shrink and disappear. I can't right now. I've got kids and I have grandchildren. One of my grandchildren sat in my lap at the UN mm-hmm. when I signed the Paris Agreement. And the symbol of that, I was quite remarkable. I didn't plan it. I happened to be stuck holding her when I was told. It made for a good photo that day. (laughs) I walked out with her and everybody applauded because they knew what the message, the message was this about her. It's about the future. We're on a terrible track right now. I mean, I I don't want to be, I I don't play doomsday politics. I don't come out and try to, you know, I don't think it's very effective to scare people. But the reality is we have to make choices based on reality. What we did in Paris was geared to hold the rise of temperature on the planet to two degrees centigrade, because that's what scientists tell us represents a tipping point. Right now, we are on track to go up four degrees Mm -hmm. in this century. That's seven degrees Fahrenheit. Scientists tell us, not politicians, scientists tell us that will have catastrophic impact on weather, on crops, their ability to grow, on floods, on uh, fires 
and the melting of the ice, the rising of the oceans. And if we can't listen to scientists and translate it into public policy, we are in deep, deep trouble. So I'm going to remain, as long as I have breath, I'm going to keep talking about this What does this that challenge. look like? Is it is it talking? Is it more than uh, being part of the public conversation? Well, no, be, no it's, it's more than being part of the public conversation. I'm raising money now for mm-hmm. candidates who are running in this election. To me, the whole focus ought to be an election in about 36, 37 days. Yep. We have the biggest course correction election we've, we've had an opportunity to have in many, many years. I, I'm going to campaign for some of those candidates in various places. Everywhere I go, as I talk about the book, the message of the book is about activism. It is about believing in your ability as an individual to make a difference and hold governing accountable. And there are many ways to do that in the process. But you've got to be willing to help make elections work. You've got to hold any elected official's feet to the fire by being involved in the political structure. And that means helping to elect people. Every campus I go to where I talk to young folks who are critical, I try to remind them that every time in history that I've seen something big happen in the context of a shift of concern mm-hmm. about an issue, it's been driven by young people, yeah. by them. I mean, we used to call the great numbers of kids who were up in New Hampshire helping Gene McCarthy mm-hmm. tell Lyndon Johnson, you can't run again. That came from what we called the peanut butter and jelly brigade. Yeah. 20 people living in one apartment up there, you know, <laughs> hanging on to make a difference in politics. And yeah. it made a difference. It made a difference. So let's just get the, the, the 2020 president question out of the way here. You're, what you've said about it in the past is you want to keep all the focus on 2018 and not talk about Is this a real question that we should be thinking about with you uh, past? Well, if I answer that question today, I'm taking the focus off of 18 and I'm putting it on to 2020. <laughs> and then you're going to everybody's going to say, oh, you know, he qualified <laughs> what he'd said previously. You know, I haven't eliminated anything in my life, period, anything, except perhaps running a sub four mile or something, you know. <laughs> I know you were moving pretty fast when I caught you at the Women's March. <laughs> uh, there's that James Carville line that uh, running for president is like uh, is like sex. Nobody does it once and then says, uh, forget about it. Uh, so. Well, I've only done it once, unlike a lot of people who've been out there um, and um, came pretty close. Uh, you did. But it doesn't. That doesn't sit with me every day, making me say, oh, okay, so you got to go do it again. I happily went out and supported uh, Barack Obama. I declined mm-hmm. to run in again mm-hmm. four years later when I could have. Uh, I didn't think it was going to be a different way. It needed to be different. There needed to be a different dynamic. But uh, I think hopefully we all stay focused on the next 36 days, seven days, and get it done. Joe Biden has talked a little bit over the last uh, year about conversations that he's had with people in other countries, the way that he's framed it is that they're asking him to explain what's going on in America. He knows a lot of people around the world for a long time. So do you. What are the conversations like that you're having with the foreign well, they're officials? Very similar. And- they're the same. I mean, the conversations I have, people bring it up. They, they really want an explanation. What has happened to America? What is going on with you guys? How can you suddenly be attacking your allies? The perception is you're pulling apart this great alliance that that helped us through the Cold War and so forth. Why are relations with Mexico and Canada and others so tense? People are concerned and people should be concerned. The speech that the that uh, look, we're back on the subject now. I don't really want to just talk mm-hmm. about the president, but it's hard to avoid it in some respects in the sense that the speech he gave in New York the UN speech. Uh, the UN speech was an appeal to basic instinct, 
of many people, but not the way the United States of America needs to behave in the world today because of the challenges we face in the world today. There are 2 billion young people between the ages of 15 and 24. There are 1.8 billion young people 15 years old and younger. About 300 million of them will not go to school anywhere in their lives. That is not a problem that just exists somewhere else in the world. That is our problem, too. In a Why? When President Trump says that's, we got to take care of America. Well, we do. I agree with that. Of course, everybody's for America first. That's not unique. Maybe the expression of it in the way that the president's saying it is different. But I don't know any president who hasn't put America first. How do you get, you know, you can't get elected if you're not protecting America's interests. So, of course, we stand up for America's interests. But America's interests are not defined the way they're being defined now. It is not in our interest to shut the door and sit down and pretend all we can do is take care of ourselves. Why? Because 95% of the world's customers live in other countries. You have to sell goods in those other countries to make our economy work. Much more importantly, frankly, if you are going to remain this powerful military and economic force in the world, you have to bring people to your side where they are, in fact, embracing the values around which we have organized ourselves ever since World War II. And if you begin to suddenly say, we don't need that, we'll just go be unilateral, we'll do what we want to do, we'll take care of ourselves, what happens when there's a crisis somewhere in the world and you need the votes at the United Nations? What happens when you need allies standing by your side? That's how we built the sanctions against Putin that stopped Putin from thinking he could march all the way to Kiev without consequence. And there are many other examples where it is only through cooperation that you can make things happen. Another example, AIDS in Africa, where the American people should be extraordinarily proud of what we've done. Or Ebola. We were told a million people were going to die in a four-month period. We said no. President Obama had the courage to send 3,000 troops to West Africa to build delivery capacity of, of a cure. And we, we stopped Ebola in its tracks. The United States uh, has been the leader of the free world for a reason, and the sacrifices that were made in the Pacific Ocean, in the Pacific during World War II, in Normandy and in Europe, that's America, a country that stands up against fascism, that stands for human rights, that raises the issues of human rights. To have our president standing beside Putin, who's interfering in our elections, as well as invading another country, and, and breaking the norms of all these years of behavior and not even have a word uttered. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. In reading the book, you talk about what happened with the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth, which came at you in the 04 campaign. You've talked in other interviews about how you felt like that was the sort of origin of fake news and some of what we've seen color uh, campaigns since. It's the full and, blossoming of it. But what you write about in part in the book is the frustration, it seems like, still of not having responded to it sooner, more effectively, that you didn't give a speech sure. about Vietnam uh, and all these things. And so I'm wondering, <clears throat> in sort of a forward-looking way here, when people think about how they respond to things that are coming up in the political discourse. It seems to get at a, a fundamental problem that a lot of Democrats have at the moment, which is that, and I've heard some of them complain about this, that they feel like if they go on cable TV, if they uh, are engaging with Trump all the time in a way that you yourself don't want to be doing constantly, then all they're doing is talking about 
things that are coming out of the White House. But no, on the, but, but, I, well, that's a mistake. I mean, I'm not here to give a lot of other people advice about what to do, <laughs> but I'll tell you, that's not the way to do it. I mean, you can answer where you have to answer, but you've got to be expressing point of view about where the country needs to go. I'm convinced that uh, there's a lot of fakery going on right now in terms of what's being done versus what is said to be done. I mean, you can just look to look at this so-called NAFTA thing that just took place. It's a rebranding of the old agreement. There are a couple of changes here and there. Those changes were taken from the TPP, which he pulled out of the labor and environment and so forth. So, uh, you know, the, you got to look behind the veil, the curtain here. It's like the Wizard of Oz, you know, behind that curtain pulling the things and you go up and then, oops, there, there's something very different. And that's a little bit where we are. These days, in light of President Trump, a lot of Democrats talk about how, well, wasn't it better under George W. Bush? And Democrats have started to raise him up in uh, their minds. A lot of what happened in the campaign in 2004 was very upsetting to you. And these were decisions that were coming out of President Bush and, and of the people who worked for him. Right? Do you, does it feel... Well, it wasn't the same. No, 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 no. It's very, very, very different. Okay. No, 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 no. The people around George W. Bush and the Bush administration... I mean, obviously, Iraq was a disaster. Yeah. And I've never talked to him about it, but I suspect he probably wasn't happy with some of the people who gave him advice or gave him, uh, mm-hmm. gave him some information that was incorrect. But George Bush, I don't think at all, tried to constantly just reinterpret something without any basis in fact or any relevance to truth. Not not consciously, certainly. And I think that uh, it was just very different. It was night and day. Yeah. There was a respect for international diplomacy. There were a lot of others. You know, They can speak for themselves. I don't have to be here to shill for the W administration. <laughs> but That would be a strange I, I, role for you to take on. But I think it was a very different uh, – I mean, not I think. It's like night and day. And I think everybody in America knows that. It read a little bit to me like you have – lingering little bits of suspicion about the voting machines in in Ohio. You talk about that. Well, it's not lingering. It's real. I mean, yes. Voting machines in Ohio were owned by the two brothers from Nebraska who were chairs of the Bush campaign. And we tried to get the algorithm certified as being on the up and up. There was a court decision which found that it was proprietary. I do not believe that in the United States of America, to validate our democracy, we should have partisans owning the voting machines for the presidency of the United States and not have them be able to be certified for for the algorithm. I think that you ought to have, personally, I think you ought to have paper ballots. I believe paper ballots are the surest way of guaranteeing everybody's confidence and have a count. India has paper ballots, but whatever. Their population is three times ours, yeah. and they have a huge vote, and they return the returns within 24 hours. If you'd won Ohio, you would have been the president of the United States. Are there nights where you go to sleep thinking, nope. no? Honestly, I, I do not know. I'm an optimist, and I'm a you know I'm focused on the future. I'm always thinking about the future. I mean, what it uh, what it the past. Let's talk just about the media environment and how it's uh, led us to where we are. There's a moment in the book that seems to be probably one of the more searing moments of your life when uh, your wife was having a seizure and you run up and have to hold her down so that she doesn't hurt herself. And as that's happening, uh, you have Glenn Beck and some other people who are saying, oh, this is all part of a 
conspiracy essentially to distract from what's going on in Egypt. Mm -hmm. I mean, what can I say about that? And it it it, it underscores a, a level of depravity, of sheer absence of any shame for anything that people can go to places like that at a moment like that. And it says mountains about where we are today, that there's such partisanship, that there's such ide ideology that you can, you can start to divide America that way. That's one of the problems with where we are right now. We have a president who absolutely is consciously choosing to do things that separate people that way and that appeals to people negative instinct. It's not the way America should work. It's not the way we bring the best out in ourselves. And it's certainly not the way we're going to get over this ugly moment of partisanship, which is bad for our country. It's fine to have a point of view and it's yeah. fine to fight for your point You're of view. You're a Democrat. You're fine to right, for it's it. not. And you can have these differences of fundamental belief and still appreciate people. Yeah. Still work with them closely. We did that in the Senate. I write in the book, you know, at, at length, and some people have said they enjoyed the, those parts of the book as much as anything, uh, sort of about the politics of the Senate when I first came, yeah, and how it worked, and 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 versus the politics of what the Senate has become. And Although I when you, your your first meeting with Robert Byrd, who's the leader, includes him trying meeting. to offer you a, a check for from a pack, right? Yeah, so it's no, not it was, it's not like a completely different world, right? No, it's not a completely different world. But that was when I mean, I for eighteen <laughs> years in the Senate, I never took a dime of pack money, and I thought Robert Byrd knew that when I came to the Senate, probably didn't like me for it. But it was a shock to me when I'm walking in for my first meeting with the majority leader. And he hands me this and he says, you take pick money? And I say, what? I didn't know what he said. I finally figured out he was talking about PAC money. And in lieu of giving me a PAC check, once I'd given, you know, said, I can't take yeah. that, I'll take it. He gave me the West Virginia cookbook. Yeah. For your, for your wife, for right? It. Yeah. For, <laughs> That's how he said it. Thing. I want to do a couple of questions as we get to the close here about the future of the Democratic Party here. We're tabling the question of whether you will be part of the 2020 race. But there are people who are thinking right now about whether they're going to run for president. Sure. You've gone through that decision process. One of the things that I was it made me laugh about it in the book is that it, you sort of skip past it. There, there's no you don't talk about how you um, struggled with it or well, and, you know and it's sort of on one page I, I, you're, you're not right. running and then on one page you are. You know, it's very observant <laughs> of you. No, no, no. You're right. It just I jump from not to doing. <laughs> you're absolutely correct. So um, what is that? As someone who's been through it and decided to run in 04 and decided not to run in 08, this is a big decision that is going on for a lot of people right now. Yeah. What is that thought process like and what does it need to be like? You know, everybody's got their yeah. own track and their own way. And a, a lot of people are hell-bent determined to do it because they've never done it before and they're going to do it. And they'll go through a, quote, process. It's not really a process. It's a lead up. I mean, let's face it. I, but I don't know what the consideration. I mean, everybody's going to have their own personal considerations, family considerations. Uh, it is not something that affects just you. It affects everybody around you. You have to make uh, some big, big decisions about it. And in, in 04, part of what drove you in the after Howard Dean was surging was people felt like electability was a really important factor in this. Well, I think electability is always going to be an important factor because uh, people don't want to waste the year. They yeah. don't want to waste their vote. Do we know what electability is in this environment? I think that... Uh, Feels different. I think it's slightly... Well, it's always different. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the mistakes politicians make is running the last election. Mm -hmm. 
It's never the last election, and I think you have to kind of keep that in mind. But I don't think it's going to be a year for total newness because people want the trains to run on time. Mm -hmm. People want to reestablish something, and I think there may be a premium for some relevant form of experience. It doesn't have to be politics, but whatever it is. You talk about when you were uh, – had you put it that you flirted but didn't date John McCain and the yeah. idea of picking him as a running mate. But the, what was driving it in your mind was the need for unity. And it still drives me in my mind. So I, I wonder whether you think that something – like that, where you're reaching across the aisle for a running mate for something involved in the campaign is something that Democrats need to be thinking about as they uh, I think, think it will it. depend a little bit on how the dynamic of this thing develops, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't eliminate it as a possibility or an option. It's, it has great difficulties, obviously, because of issues like choice or approach on health care mm -hmm. or whatever. It can have fundamental kinds of differences. And and if there are too many similarities in that, it may not have the effect, you know, that you're trying to create. It would have required. I mean, those are the things that John McCain and I talked about. So how do you get over this hurdle? Yeah. That hurdle. Evidently, it meant enough to him, and he thought enough of it that four years later, he thought about yep. doing it with Joe Lieberman. So I would have loved to. I never asked him. You know, I was out <laughs> visiting with him when I went out to Arizona. And uh, we didn't, we talked, we had so much to talk about. We didn't talk about that. But I wish now I'd asked him sort of what was you thinking about that? And how did you think? Got an answer <laughs> 15 years later. <laughs> Do you think that there's a chance that you're going to be, that uh, you'll be the last white male nominee of the Democratic Party, presidential nominee, at least for a while? Well, anything is possible. <laughs> I mean, who, who knows? I mean, I, I, as I said to you, I not only chose Barack Obama to give the keynote at my convention because I knew exactly what happened would happen. I thought he'd be an exciting, terrific new voice, and he was. Uh, I just didn't expect him. I thought he might renominate me four years later. <laughs> that um, was the plan. That was, was the plan. But uh, you know, I wound up working for him instead. <laughs> <laughs> and he handed you that uh, at the inauguration. What he signed? Uh, I signed a wonderful thing on the on the on on the. Uh, on the agenda of the luncheon afterwards yeah. and said, I'm here because of you. It was very, very nice. It's a good thing to have, very I guess. Nice, very nice thing. But I decided likewise that I, I wanted to support him because mm -hmm. I thought we needed that narrative. I think right now uh, we're going to need a similar sort of evaluation of what the feel is. And I don't think it's clear yet. Let's get the, through yeah. 2018. I keep <laughs> saying it. Let's close with just thinking about the future of government a little bit here. Um, the the last picture in the book is a picture of you with your daughter on your final day at the State Department. You're packing up the boxes. And the caption on it, it ends by saying that putting everything away in the bare shelves was a prelude of what was to follow. Well, a large percentage of competent people have resigned, not just from the State Department, but from many, many of the departments in our government. That's a huge loss. I know some people, you know, in the current administration will rejoice and say that's how we're draining the swamp. In my judgment, a lot of good people left and, and they're important to the continuity of experience because that experience is important. When a crisis hits, you got to know who you call. You got to know how it works. You got to know how you get the fastest response. And if all of a sudden you got a bunch of green people for whom it's the first round, it can cost lives. It can be a, a serious detriment to effective governance. So I, I believe in quality. I believe in experience. I believe in people 
who have spent some time knowing their job and doing it well. And to lose them, they go off in the private sector or somewhere, hurts the institution. We don't know what's going to happen in the midterms. We don't know what's going to happen in 2020. We don't know what we're looking at here. But from what you've seen over this almost two years of the Trump presidency and the Trump administration, is this a permanent change to how government works, how politics works? Are there things that are just never going to be the same? Well, obviously, there are some things that will never be the same, uh, and nor should they be. I think that the vast flow of information today in the world is something nobody's going to suddenly stop. But that's not with him. What I'm saying, with because of what he has done as president, uh, because of how he's changed government, how he's changed politics, well, whether you think it's a good uh, thing or a bad thing, you think it's a bad thing? Well, I think some things are good, actually. And I think some things are obviously bad. I think I, I've advocated for a long time that people need to listen to the people. Yeah. And you need to respond to their needs. And one of the needs is make government work. Yeah. So it is entirely appropriate to be uh, trying to change the culture of Washington. I'm, I'm for that. But change it positively. Change it in a way that gets results. Uh, nothing is really being passed by Congress. What the president's doing is done by executive authority or by, uh, you know, by, uh, a negotiation with somebody. And, and I'm fine with that. I'm, I was for the president dropping a couple of bombs on Assad. I would wish we'd have done that and gotten some leverage back when I was there. I think the president uh, taking a flyer and, and reaching out to North Korea after the bombast that preceded it was very important. And I'm for engagement. I think that's good. But I'm for engagement that has been thought through and prepared in a way that you come out of your first summit with something more than just rhetoric. You come out with Not a clear- Love letters and- a well, clear way to be able to proceed forward on the denuclearization or a clear understanding of the definition of it or a clear understanding of when you will have the actual accounting for the weapons and so forth. Now, maybe they'll get that in the weeks that come. Great. The world is better off if that happens. I hope it all works now and we can get where we need to go. We will all be better for that. But nobody should have any illusions, I, I think, for the president of the United States to say we're in love with a man who has strapped people to a post, stripped them naked first, and then fired 122 millimeter air, anti-aircraft guns into them and slaughtered them uh, so that people who were forced to watch faint and throw up and, and who eliminates his own uncle, has him arrested and then uh, you know killed. I mean, there are long lists here of what this guy has done and what the gulags in North Korea uh, do. And, and if it weren't the other side of the aisle that here, you'd hear a storm of protest if that were a Democrat doing what's going on now, you know, hugging uh, as malevolent a dictator as we've seen Kim Jong-un to be. I, I don't want to end on anti-aircraft assassination. Uh, so let me just ask you this. You've been pretty animated in this discussion. The book has got a lot of things in it. Does it drive you crazy when people, you hear the people have talk about you as like a stiff <laughs> and that uh, well, they, they don't know me, and, yeah. and people who who get to know me, people read the book. I, I don't worry about it. I mean, people. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> that's a showstopper. That's that's worse than a one twenty two millimeter. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. I look. I I've changed over the years. I think I wound up in two thousand four as a very different candidate from the person I began as. 
no question in my mind. And I know that in my years as secretary, even more so, uh, I think I changed. And some people think I maybe gained in confidence or came out of a shell or whatever. I don't know the answer to all that. I don't get caught up in the psychobabble. What I can tell you is I'm loving what I'm doing. I'm loving being engaged in the process. And right now, I've never seen as many critical issues on the table. You know, we've got to make America fair. We can't deal with a country where 52% of America, 51% of America's income is going to 1% of Americans. That is an unsustainable political equation. That's number one. Number two, you've got to guarantee on a social structure at home that the structure works for people so they can get ahead in their income. They can have health care universally, affordable in America. And that's going to come through a better health care system and a better tax code. Number three, we've got to make America safer in the world. And that begins by dealing with climate change, where there are millions of jobs to be created in building a legitimate energy grid for America and in becoming the world's energy leader because it's the largest market the world's ever seen. And it's the solution to climate change. Four, we've got to deal with cyber. We're as threatened by cyber now as we were from nuclear weapons back in the 50s and 60s. And you can bring a country to its heels with a cyber attack. So we got to get out of space, not have space weaponry suddenly reappearing again. I thought we stopped that 20 years ago. And then, of course, uh, the world. I mean, if you're not engaged in the world in dealing with transboundary disease or with education for people in other countries, then extremists are going to come after us one day, just like they did in New York City. And we're going to need to be the strongest power in the world to defend the values which we've organized around ever since World War II when we defeated fascism, back then at least. So I'm, I'm, I'm engaged, man. I've done this my whole life. <laughs> you I'm have. not going to suddenly stop and say I'm not going to be involved in these choices. You know that old question that sometimes was asked of World War II or Korea's of, Daddy, what did you do in the war? Well, people are going to ask daddy, mommy, kid, what did you do in this moment in our history where our democracy is threatened, where the challenges are as great as they've ever been, and where the world is not coordinating very effectively? That's a big challenge. And that, that makes more sense than anti-aircraft guns to end on. So, Secretary Kerry, thanks for taking the time. Thanks. Okay, everyone. Hope you found that one interesting. His book, again, is Every Day is Extra, and there is a lot in there that we didn't cover. So now, for the last time, remember to follow me on Twitter at Isaac Dover so you can keep up with me. And please, still email me at IsaacDover at gmail.com if you've got thoughts or questions on this or any other podcast or anything else. Thank you, for the last time, to Zach Stanton for producing this episode. And thank you again to all of you for listening to this one and all the others. I've enjoyed it, and I wouldn't have been able to do it without all of you listening. <laughs>